Have you ever come up against tension when it comes to your faith before? Have you ever come up against any tension when it comes to your faith with another person before? As a pastor, it seems that I tend to find myself in these situations even more quickly than the rest of you do. If you want to know how to shut down a conversation really quickly, you just say this, hey, I'm a pastor. It's like crickets, right? Chirping, oh, okay, okay, let me go do something else. So in college, I worked at Logan's Roadhouse in Louisville, Kentucky. Yes, that's the place where people get to throw all their trash on the ground, peanuts, trash, whatever, and then I have to clean it up at the end of the night. That's the right place. You're thinking about the right place. And I was known as the GMOC, G-M-O-C, the GMOC to the bartender at Logan's Roadhouse in Louisville, Kentucky. And GMOC stood for God's Man of the Cloth. So it would look like this, Gmock, you're not going to sell this guy another beer, are you? He would say things like, Gmock, you want me to make this a virgin Long Island iced tea? He would say things like, Gmock, where's your collar today? Gmock, it's Sunday, why are you working today? And on and on and on. I quickly realized that Tim had a religious history that leaned more Catholic, and he had a really difficult time seeing God as personal. And so he would just make little jabs at me all day long. And it was funny for a while, but then I was like, man, I'm not the G-Mock. I don't have a collar, man. I'm just a normal dude, and I love Jesus. And I just wanted him to know that more and more and more. This is a light example of opposition. And many of us have had very serious tensions for what we believe before. Ones that have not been easy to navigate. Ones that have dealt with your family. Others that have dealt with very close friends. We're going to be looking at why this happens today, because Jesus leads us there today. So before hatred and persecution ever occur against our faith, opposition is birthed from differing worldviews. That's where it comes from. There's a different set of value structure that we look at the world through. So let's read our text from John chapter 15 today. We're going to start in verse 18 and work our way through chapter 16, verse 4. Jesus says this to his disciples who are gathered in the upper room. If the world hates you, know that it hated me before it hated you. If you were of the world, the world would love you as its own. But because you are not of the world, because I chose you out of the world, therefore the world hates you. Remember the word that I said to you. A servant is no greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will also persecute you. If they kept my word, they will also keep yours. But all these things they will do to you on account of my name, because they do not know him who sent me. If I had not come and spoken to them, they would not have been guilty of sin. But now they have no excuse for their sin. Whoever hates me, hates my father also. If I had not done among them the works that no one else did, they would not be guilty of sin. But now they have seen and hated both me and my father. But the word that is written in the law must be fulfilled. They hated me without a cause. But when the Helper comes, whom I will send to you from the Father, the the Spirit of truth who proceeds from the Father, he will bear witness about me. And you also will bear witness because you have been with me from the beginning. I have said all these things to you to keep you from falling away. They will put you out of the synagogues. Indeed, the hour is coming when whoever kills you will think that he is offering service to God. And they will do these things because they have not known the Father nor me. But I have said these things to you, 
that when their hour comes, you may remember that I told them to you. Let's pray together. Our Father, we come to you this morning just being very aware of the presence that that the gospel is offensive, that the person of Jesus is offensive. And Father, we, we just confess that there are times where we are tempted to not be willing to stand in the name of Christ because of the opposition that comes our way. And Father, I pray specifically that you would reconcile in our hearts this morning how it is that you would birth love in us for a world that does not believe in you. Because that's what you're after in this passage. That's what Jesus was after with his disciples. So would you birth that in us this morning? Would you reveal yourself to us more fully as you show yourself to us this morning? It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. We are in a series of messages called The Upper Room. And this series of messages, we've been specifically looking at a few chapters of the Bible, namely John 13 through 17. In John 13 through 17, what's happened is Jesus has been with his disciples. They've been doing miracles. The public ministry has been huge. Starting in chapter 13, Jesus turns his attention toward his disciples in this upper room in Jerusalem as they're preparing for the Passover feast. And Jesus has told them lots of things. Lots of interesting things have happened in this upper room, like Jesus washing his disciples' feet, like one of Jesus' disciples betraying him. Another one of Jesus' disciples will disown him, Jesus says. He'll deny him. And then Jesus tells them that he's not going to be with them. But then he says, hey, I'm going to send this helper. I'm going to send the Holy Spirit that will come and comfort you. He'll be your advocate, even in my absence. And last week we talked about this idea that Jesus is the vine and we are the branches. It's those that, that call upon him and have faith in him. And that the Father is the vine dresser. He's the one that nips and prunes our lives to shape them more into the image of Jesus. And sometimes that's really painful. And that pain, this is what Jesus is getting to right here. That sometimes that pain will lead to things that you would never want to be a part of for the sake of the gospel. And that's what he's talking about. So I want to define what I mean by a worldview before we talk about differing worldviews this morning. The worldview is this. The comprehensive perspective from which we interpret all of reality. The comprehensive perspective from which we interpret all of reality. So this is the lens that we look at the world from. Everything that happens in life, we have a particular way that we look at the world. The scriptures would teach us that there are conflicts with the worldly worldview and one that comes from a Christian, that there are conflicts that inevitably lead to things like the world hating you. We got to deal with that this morning. So let me show you maybe a couple of examples of worldviews in conflict. As a Christian, you believe that maybe life starts at conception and your unbelieving friend may believe the opposite. You're going to live differently when you believe that the image of God is put on someone when they're still in the womb. That there's value while they're in the womb before they ever do anything. You're going to live differently. As a Christian, you may believe that all humanity, though flawed by sin, is made in the image of God. So you see, regardless of what someone does, you see value in someone because God made them. They have a relationship to God, whether they acknowledge that relationship or not, and whether they have a relationship with God or not. You see value in everyone because God made them. So this could be prisoners, criminals, outcasts, people that are very visibly broken, that have done very shameful things. We still see value because we realize that no one is out of God's reach 
of redemption. I was reading in Luke 6 this morning, and just after the Beatitudes, where Jesus talks about basically what the blessed life looks like, it's this paradoxical set of verses that he talks about there. He, he, he pronounces four woes, and they're kind of paradoxical as well. Luke 6.26 says this, Woe to you when all people speak well of you, for so their fathers did to the false prophets. So what is Jesus talking about to his disciples right there? Jesus is saying that, that people, they hated the real prophets of God, they denied the real prophets of God, and they pursued the false prophets. So in our lives, we are going to meet opposition. It's not a matter of if, but when, and the measure of that. So the question is, where does it come from, and what do we do with that? So the big idea of our sermon today is this. To understand how we are to live in the world, we must first know our relationship to the world. So the first, the first thing that we've got to answer, this word world is mentioned like six times in John 15 in the first couple of verses here. We've got to answer the question is, what is he talking about when he says the world? And this week, God kind of flipped it on its head and expanded the way that I see the world. And I hope that he does the same with you. So this word for world is the word cosmos. And as we understand what this word cosmos means, here's something that you should carry with you anytime you read the Bible, anytime you listen to a sermon, is the fact that context is king. You've got to understand what the word means in that particular passage to understand what the passage means. Because some words mean different things at different times. So context is king. I want you to have that in the back of your mind as we look at this. So as we look at this word cosmos, I think it would be helpful for us to paint a picture of, of kind of this battle that's going on, this battle that's raging all around us. It's this picture of a battle. The chief protagonists are two kings. One is a legitimate king and one is a usurper. Each having his own sovereignty and army. Each waging war for the possession of the same territory. That's very key to understanding where we're going today. They're waging war for the same territory. The kingship of the rightful sovereign is what the Bible calls the kingdom of God. And its people are the church. While that of his rival is called the world or the kingdom of darkness and those outside. So those outside of Christ are what the Bible would describe those that are a part of the world. And, and the world doesn't just include people, it includes things. We read in, in, in Romans chapter 8 that redemption does not only occur for humanity, but it occurs for creation. That's a really crazy thing to think about. The implications of what God is doing in and through us are not only to redeem souls, but to redeem things. That God is interested in the material universe. Here's the main thing about that metaphor there, is that both of these sovereigns claim that they have dominion over the same territory. Now you and I know that can't be possible, right? That cannot be possible for the same sovereigns, two different ones, to have dominion over the same territory. The way that I want you to think about the world is like this. It's simply the areas of creation that have not been reclaimed or redeemed by God. So in this passage, Jesus is not saying that we should develop an us versus them mentality which would say things like, well, because they don't believe the same things as us, we've got to separate ourselves from them. That's never what Jesus says here. If we can just get away from them, then things would be better. If we could just separate ourselves from people that do not believe the same things that we believe, then life would be good to go. Jesus is not saying that here. Instead, you know what he's doing? Jesus is saying that we're to engage 
in the world. That we're to be in the world and not of the world. There's this kind of a paraphrase of what Jesus says in, in these passages that are ensuing in the coming weeks. So we're to live in the tension of being hated by the world and loved and helped by God. Like, that's, that's the will of God for his church. Nowhere in the Bible does he tell us to kind, of, to kind of flee from that. So the question is, what is the world? Richard Mao, in his book, Creation Regained, describes three different definitions for the word world. And these are very important because I hadn't heard one of these before. The first one is the one that you all think about. It's the negative view of the world. So Jesus kind of mentions the negative view of the world here in John 15 as we look at this. If the world hates you, know that it hated me before it hated you. So the hatred is connected to the world. The world doesn't like you because you're of me. And what it's, what it's describing is rebellion, a present sinful way of living. That, that's worldliness. That's, that's what Jesus is talking about there. Then there's this, this other definition, the neutral kind of definition of the world. Speaking in more terms of a, a geographical sense of what the world is. So in Matthew 24, 14, Jesus says this, The gospel of the kingdom will be preached to the whole world, the whole cosmos. So he's talking about how the gospel will advance. We'll go to the whole cosmos. And then this is the one that really surprised me, and I hope it kind of surprises you as well. But the positive sense of the word, the positive sense of the word world or cosmos goes like this. Let me read John 3, 16 and 17 for you, because this word cosmos is in there several times. It says this, for God so loved the cosmos. Okay, so let's stop right there. God loves the cosmos. So that even the cosmos hates him, God loves the cosmos. He loves his creation. He loves the world. For God so loved the cosmos that he gave his son. Whoever believes in him and his son should not perish, but have eternal life. For God did not send his son into the cosmos to condemn the cosmos, the world. But rather to save the cosmos through him. Think about that. That's the same word that Jesus is using in John 15 when he says that the cosmos will hate you. Jesus, the Father loves the cosmos. The whole reason why he sent the Son. He loves the world. He loves what has been lost. He still loves it. That changes the way that I think about the word. So in this sense, the cosmos refers to the entire created order. Everything that God has created. And God has sent Jesus out of his love for the cosmos, even though they've rebelled against him. He sent them to redeem it. He sent them to redeem it. He sent them to redeem the unredeemed creation. And as creation is redeemed, hostility will ensue. Hostility will ensue. I was watching, you guys are going to think I'm crazy, okay? I was watching Cinderella again last night. I love, I love this movie. I don't know why. I just love it. Watching Cinderella with my daughter last night, she really wanted to watch it, and it came out on DVD, so we kind of got it, and whole family sat around, and I'm sitting over by the fireplace weeping, right, when Cinderella and the kids are all loving Cinderella. There's just part, there's just part of the movie that just describes the gospel so clearly. There's just part of the movie that just shows exactly what we're looking at today, this father that loves the cosmos. To kind of set it up, she's, she's walking down the steps, Cinderella has walking down the steps, because her mother and father have died. Her, her stepmother has kind of taken over the, the household, and she's made Cinderella a servant. And she's made her two legitimate daughters like legitimate daughters. So Cinderella has been, she's kind of been exiled to the upper room. 
to this attic kind of room, and she's been locked in. And what happens is, is the king has met her, and the king desires her. Only Cinderella cannot go to the king and show that she's the one that fits the shoe, right? She can't go because she's locked in. And so what does the king do? The king pursues her. The king comes to her house, and he looks through every nick and cranny, and he hears this voice singing, and, and, and the stepmother's lying, and, and he says, look, I know she's in there. Bring her down. And he sends one of his captains in the army to go find her. And she says, she's walking down the steps. And she's in her rags, in her, in her mother's dress that's all tainted and torn because she's been working like a slave. She's walking down the steps. Here's the conversation that's playing in her mind. The narrator kind of talks about it. Would who she was really be enough? There was no magic to help her this time. This is perhaps, listen to this, the greatest risk any of us will ever take to be seen as we truly are. Cinderella. There's no princess, there's no carriage, there's no parents, there's no dowry. And she says, I don't even know if the slipper will fit. Will you take me as I am? Be honest. And the prince says, he's the king at the time actually, of course I will but only if you'll take me as I am, an apprentice who's still learning his trade. And I think about that, and I think about the cosmos. God so loved the cosmos that He sent the King to your front door. And He found you as someone that didn't have it all together. And some of you, you're yet to be found, you're yet to open the the door to the King to receive the King's love. Because you think that there's no way that He can love an unlovable you. For God so loved the cosmos that He sent Jesus to redeem the cosmos. This this is a radical thing that God has done. Have you ever known this kind of love before? Have you ever known such a love that would come and find you in the middle of your mess when you didn't have it all together and and to wrap His arms around you anyway? There are those of us that will say, yeah, I don't need that. And you're lying. And there were those of you who say, I need to believe that a little bit more. And I think that's all of us. This is King Jesus. This is where the King meets us. And this is what He thinks about the cosmos. Those people that you can't stand because of the way that they treat you, Jesus loves them because He created them. He created them for the beginning of time. So we can clearly see the opposition between the disciples of Jesus and the world. We can see that that exists. However, it's not because the cosmos is unlovable and unredeemable that the conflict exists. So the next question we've got to answer is this. Why Is there hostility between the church and the world? For those that believe in Jesus and those that do not believe in Jesus. You've asked yourself questions like, why can't we all just get along? Why is there hate in the midst of what God is doing here? Why am I experiencing this? We all have this question. And I've got to take you back to the book of Genesis just for a few minutes to kind of expand what we're looking at here. In the book of Genesis, we see that God created the entire world, the entire cosmos, everything that's in it. And we see that Everything that we taste, touch, experience, that was all created by God. Some of it redeemed, some of it unredeemed. And every single one of us, whether we want to acknowledge it or not, we have a relation, I said this earlier, we have a relation to God. Because He made us. Now the question is, do you have a relationship with God? Is it redeemed or is it unredeemed? Because there's no question if, you have, if, you're, if you're related to God or not because He made you. You had no choice over that. After God had created the cosmos and everything in it, He saw that it was all good. 
But then he made his supreme creation, man and woman. He said, this is very, very good. And then he gave a responsibility to the man and to the woman over all the earth. He said, this earth, this earth is yours. And your responsibility, your responsibility in this earth is, is to care for it and to subdue the earth. You have a responsibility over the cosmos. But in Genesis 3, chaos and disorder ensue, and they enter into the picture, and, and through the deception of the enemy, all of these good things begin to distort it. All of these good relationships, they begin to be broken. When Jesus speaks of the world in John 15, He's speaking of those that live in rebellion to God's rule and to God's reign. I want, I want to show a diagram to kind of help you understand what happens in the fall. Because, because guys, we will understand why hostility exists when we understand the magnitude and the scope of what happens in conversion. That's the only way that we'll ever understand why hostility exists toward those that believe in Jesus. Because when, when, we, have a, when we have a view that says, oh, you know, they're a nice person, why, why are they treating me this way? We don't understand the magnitude of the work of God in conversion, what He's done to, to, to turn a dead sinner into a spirit-filled being and new heart, ready to praise Him, ready to live their life for Him. We don't understand what's happening. So in this diagram, we see that, that God created creation, and there was direction that the creation moved toward. And it was toward the fall. And so there was this, there was this descent that affected every single thing in the world. Every single relationship in the world was distorted by sin. And so things that, that should be are no longer that way, because sin has distorted those things. Sin has distorted the perfect design of God, and we no longer live as God intended us to live. The fall has affected every part of creation. But the redemption of the cosmos is much bigger than we could ever imagine. In this redemption, creation is, is regained. It's won back to the King. And things are restored to their intended purpose in life. And relationships are the same. So this all sounds great, that the redemption's occurred, so why the hate and why the persecution? Because in redemption, listen to this, don't, if you don't get anything else, get this. Grace is disruptive. Grace messes things up because it doesn't make sense to us. We want to live in a karma world and grace kicks against that every time because grace doesn't make sense. You know why? Because it's motivated by love. Love that we could never earn. Grace messes us up because it uproots every form of self-salvation imaginable. Everything that you put in your life to try to redeem you and put you in a good place where you can feel safe and secure, it uproots it all. That's what grace does. It uproots every act of defiance that I have against God's will. It shows sin for what it is and our rebellion and distrust of God and His good design. That's what it does. It messes things up. And I want someone to tell me again that the gospel isn't disruptive. Because the gospel says that humanity is so bad, that every single thing in humanity is so bad, that it took the blood of a sinless man dying on our behalf to make us right again. Who wants to believe, apart from, apart from the grace of God coming on someone, who wants to believe that they are that bad? It's only when you have hope in Jesus that you're willing to engage the fact that, that there's, you, can't, you can't get around this. You try to cover it up. You try to fix it. But you realize the only answer is Jesus. Listen to John 15, 21 through 24. 
But all these things they will do to you on account of my name, because they do not know him who sent me. If I had not come and spoken to them, they would not have been guilty of sin. But now they have no excuse for their sin. And I want to pause right there for a second. He's not saying that if Jesus wouldn't have come, that people wouldn't have been guilty for sin. He's saying that they wouldn't have been guilty for rejecting the Messiah if Jesus wouldn't have come. He goes on to say, whoever hates me hates my father. If I had not done among them the works that no one else did, they would not be guilty of sin. But now they have seen and hated both me and my father. In order to understand the hate, we've got to understand what happens in conversion. It's so offensive because we, don't, we, we, we want to think that we don't need anyone else in life. Even those of us that follow Christ. We still want to use Jesus as a crutch, don't we? Hey, I got this. I just, just need my crutch today. We still want to use Jesus as a crutch. But the thing that he's showing us is that there's, there's, there's no crutch involved in this thing. It's always kind of a wheelchair. Jesus is always pushing us along, walking alongside of us via His Spirit. You can't walk on your own. You can't do life. You can't please the Father on your own. And when you preach that message, when you live that way, it's offensive. Because you are uprooting this idea of self-salvation that we all think that we can do it on our own. This grace in Jesus confronts all of our sin. And grace... And hostility ensue because grace is disruptive. I'm reminded of this account in John chapter 8 where this thing happens. And, and basically here's what happens. I'm not, I'm not going to read it, but I'm going to summarize it for you. This woman is caught in adultery, a very public sexual sin. She's caught. She's busted. And the law says to stone her, and the religious officials come and say, hey, Jesus, you say that you're the fulfillment of the law. <laughs> what do you say we should do here, Jesus? And they're trying to trick Jesus, right? And then Jesus flips this thing on its head just like he does with everything, right? Jesus, who loves the cosmos, which would include this very sinful and at this point unredeemed woman, right? He says, hey, before we get to the stoning, let's ask a question. Let's, let's, just for fun, let's just ask this question here. Let he who has no sin cast the first stone. And Jesus bends down and he begins to play in the sand, build a sandcastle, write people's names in the sand. No one really knows what he's doing, but he's down in the sand. And all of a sudden, from the oldest to the youngest, everyone just kind of starts to, oh, okay, nobody's looking, I'm out of here. Everyone starts to just kind of fade away. And all of a sudden, you see, in this instance, there's Jesus and there's this woman. She's before the face of God because she's before Jesus. She can never be closer to God than she was in that moment. I mean, Jesus is right with her. And all of these people that religiously have it together that she's so afraid to be around, all of a sudden they're, they're kind of out. And it's just Jesus and this woman. And Jesus says, where'd they all go? And then he says, go and leave your life of sin and sin no more. Go and leave the life you tried to find in the cosmos, in the world, in the unredeemed creation. But notice he doesn't say forget about the cosmos. He doesn't say, hey, go hide away from the world because that's what messed you up in the first place. Because he knew that it was the sin in our heart that had her in this predicament. And that was what he was coming to heal. That's the heart that he was coming to exchange. And so for us, we, we run into people all the time that we... It, 
let me, let me put it this way. If you want to see conflict, get around somebody who sins differently than you, right? Someone that, that sin looks a little different than yours? You want to see conflict? You want to see self-righteousness? When you get in those situations where people deal with different types of sin, it's always like, well, you know, my sin's a little more socially acceptable than yours, so I must mean I'm a little better than you. And Jesus, Jesus says, hey, you guys are actually in a worse place because you're not coming to me in repentance. It's repentance that matters, we see. Jesus is such a radical Savior because he unmasks the enemy's schemes to hold us captive. He unmasks it every single time, and he shows that, that he's the king, just like in that Cinderella. I keep coming back to Cinderella. This is the king. He's at the door. He's searching the house. He's looking for you. He's finding us. When we think that we're unlovable, he is right there. We have to have a better understanding of what happens in conversion for us to understand our relationship to the world. We were so bad that God had to send His Son. Yet we are so loved that God wants to redeem the world through His church, through this kingdom of priests that He calls us. Priesthood of all believers. And so we enter into the conflict of this war that's waging all around us because Jesus is better and there is a better way forward for the world. So the last question we're answering is this. How does the church respond to the hostility in the world? Okay, Ryan, what does this look like this week? What does this look I mean, there was, a, there was a shooting this week in Oregon, right? Some early sources say that the, the guy was like, hey, are you a Christian? And, and he shot people. We don't know if that was the only motivation or what it was. But, I mean, this isn't a new thing. There's this stuff going on with ISIS. There's this stuff in, in the church in Charleston. I mean, this is, there are very public things that are happening. And there are lots of little things that are happening in Lawrenceville. Maybe there aren't mass shootings. But there's ways to engage the world. That, that God wants us to be about His work in the world this week. In John 15, 26 and 27, Jesus says this. We're kind of continuing through this passage. But when the Helper comes, whom I will send to you from the Father, the Spirit of truth, who proceeds from the Father, what will, the, what will He do? What will the Spirit do? He will bear witness about Me. And you also will bear witness, because you have been with Me from the beginning. So what is the role of the Christian in the midst of hostility? To bear witness to the Son because we're empowered by the Holy Spirit. We stand and we bear witness about the Son because He's the only hope. Jesus wants to communicate something to His disciples right now that they are going to come against opposition. This is not a possibility. It's not one of those worst case scenario things. It's like, hey guys, this is going to happen. I don't want it to catch you off guard. This is a part of my plan. Because conversion is such a radical thing. It's, it's such a radical work of grace for God to raise a sinner to life. And I want you to be surprised by this. And when the truth meets lies, when darkness meets light, when flesh meets spirit, there is a collision, there is a battle, and it shouldn't surprise us. This is the whole purpose Jesus came into the world. This is what His whole purpose was. He's given us this ministry as His church, as His people of reconciliation. I want to remind you of what that ministry... So what is the will of God for you this week? To be about the work of reconciliation. That's what it is. So let's read from 2 Corinthians 5 real quick and hear about this. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, starting in verse 17, uh, he is a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new, it's come. That's what it means to be a Christian. You've been given a new heart, a new identity. 
All this is from God. It's not from you, it's from God. Who through Christ reconciled us to himself. And he gives us the ministry of reconciliation. That is, in Christ, God was reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against them, not counting the trespasses of the world, the cosmos against them, and entrusting with us the message of reconciliation. And he says this, Therefore, because of that, that message that we have, we are ambassadors for Christ. And God, what is the work that God's doing? He's making his appeal through us. He says, We implore you on behalf of Christ to be reconciled to God. For our sake he made him to be sin, who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Reconciliation is a restoration of a relationship where hostility once occurred. That's what it is. That's the ministry that God has given us. And that's a battle, right? I mean, that's not easy. We've got to understand the way that we think about the kingdom of God and how God advances his kingdom for us to understand this. I want to throw an image up on the screen. A lot of us tend to think about the kingdom of God like this. This is an original. It came from that same book I quoted earlier. We tend to think that, that God is interested in your church life. Like God, right now, God is super interested in all of you because you're a part of this sphere that we kind of have these subcategories of uh, compartmentalization where this is church. God is interested in this. God is all over this. He loves me right now because I'm involved in church. And we would say that everything else is secular. So it's like, well, I might kind of bring God into that every once in a while, but that's kind of, I'm just going to let that be secular. That's kind of the way that we kind of see, we see it in two kingdoms, that there's the kingdom of God and then there's everything else. This is a, I think this is a false view of God's kingdom. Because if we have this view, we either live in fear or anger of the cosmos and the hostility that ensues because you're not of the cosmos. So in fear, we're alarmed at the opposition toward the gospel, okay? So what do we do? We retreat. So all these things that I just mentioned that are happening, we begin to have fearful attitudes. We begin to think, how can I get away from all this? How can I hide away from the world? Because I don't want it to take my life. I recently heard someone mention this to me after the ISIS attacks on the Christians. And they said this kind of fatalistic phrase that maybe you even thought of too. I mean, I, I think I, I was tempted to believe the same thing, that, that Muslims are taking over the world. You're tempted to believe these things when things are publicized and you watch Fox News or CNN or read the Drudge Report or whatever, and fear ensues in your heart. And then all of a sudden we're reminded by the words of, I think it's 1 John, where perfect love casts out fear. So it can't be the will of God for us to be so fearful of men, right? So, so fear can ensue when we have this view. Also, anger can ensue when we begin to get hostile toward those people who see the world and themselves differently than we do. And, and here's the thing, guys. Neither of these are the gospel. Neither of these are what God has called us to as Christians. Neither of these are the ministry of reconciliation. Because in both of these... We're either aiming our proverbial guns at people or we're running for the mountains, right? Neither of those are entering into the story of the cosmos, meeting this collision of the kingdom of light and the kingdom of darkness. Neither of those are the answers. So what, what is a better response? I'll show this diagram. It's to see the world as one kingdom. Like I mentioned this analogy, this metaphor to you about battle before. To see that there's two different... There's this... There's this true sovereign who's God and, and King Jesus. And then there's this false God, this, this usurper, the enemy, who are battling for the same dominion of the same territory. 
When we see that God, when He redeems us, doesn't just redeem your Sunday morning or your Wednesday night or your discipleship group or your, the time that you're serving the homeless or whatever. When, he, when, when we see that God is redeeming everything in our lives, all of a sudden all of our life can be worship, right? Everything in our lives can, can inhabit a posture of worship because God is redeeming all things in our life. And, and, and maybe, maybe family, you know, there's, there's a little bit more of a worldly influence the way that I see my family. Than, than maybe there is the way that I see my emotions or the way that I, that I view education or, or the way that I view like the material world that God's created. Maybe I don't really care about that. I'm not really interested in redeeming. Maybe, maybe I have a little bit more of a, a worldly, utilitarian view of God's creation. But we see that the kingdom of God, when it, when, when it enters into us through the Holy Spirit and conversion, that God begins to take domain over territory that was once captured by the enemy. And how does he do this? Through the ministry of reconciliation. He does this through the church being light. Through the army, which is the, the, the church, the kingdom of light invading the darkness. With the posture of anger? That didn't work out too well in the crusades, right? Didn't really work out too well. With the posture of love. Did you know that every single one of these disciples that Jesus is addressing would be martyred? Except for John. And we're not really sure what happened to the Apostle John other than the fact that he was on the island of Patmos, exiled, where he, I think, wrote the book of Revelation. Every single one of them. What if they would have ran for the mountain? What if they all would have just, hey, let's get on a boat and go to Patmos. Let's get out of here. How would the gospel advance? There's a better way, church. And Jesus says whoever, whoever wants to save his life would lose it. Whoever... Lose his life for my sake, will gain it. Reminded of the story of this missionary, Jim Elliott. Some of you have heard the story of, of Jim, Jim Elliott. And the most famous quote that Jim Elliott's ever said is this. He who's no fool who gives what he cannot keep to gain that which he cannot lose. So the story of Jim Elliott is that they were called to be missionaries. He and his team of like five or six guys. And they were in Ecuador. They were with the Alcas people. They were learning their language, getting to know how they operate and what they believe. Over the course of three years, they had limited contact. And they had finally reached this position on January 2nd of 1956 where they said, hey, we're going in with a plane and Lord be with us because we're, we're, we're coming in with the gospel. We're, we're going to fully pursue this ministry of reconciliation that you, your word talks about. We're going to enter in. And they come in and long story short, there's some kind of peaceful interactions for about six days. And on the seventh day, these two women come out to them. And they cross across the river. And all of a sudden, the missionaries can tell that things are not going as they had planned. And as they begin to pursue these two women to kind of engage in that ministry of reconciliation, these warriors emerge from the woods with all these spears. And they begin to spear the missionaries. And they murder every single one of them. That would be a really sad story if I didn't tell you what I'm about to tell you. Every single one of them died. Everybody that had influence in their life, everybody that they had influence on, could have ran in fear at that moment. They could have all left. Do you know what Jim Elliott's wife did? She moved to Ecuador, and she lived among the Alcas people. And many of them became believers in Jesus through this ministry of reconciliation when she began to pursue, even though they took so much from her. My question to you is this, is what if God wants to do that in you? What if God wants to go into some of the most painful relationships in your life and you have the courage that comes with knowing God and the hope of knowing God 
empowered by the Holy Spirit, into some of the most difficult places you will ever go and see God do something you can never imagine. What if God wants to do that? Because I think he probably wants to do more of that than we would ever care to recognize. Let's pray together. Father, would you give us courage? Would you give us love? Would you help us to see the cosmos, the world that you created and saw so good? Would you help us to see that in a redemptive view? Would you eradicate the fear in our hearts? Would you, would you cast out the fear with the same love that you loved the cosmos before the world began? Would you do that in us? And would you give us love for people that cannot love us back right now? For the people that make our lives difficult? Would you birth in us something that is unexplainable? And would you cause us to draw near to those that only want to cast stones at us, that only want to bring us down, that only want to draw us away from you? Would you do that work, God? And would you meet each and every one of us here this morning and show that there's nothing, there's no part of us that cannot be redeemed. There's, there's nothing that is impossible when we know you. Would you do that work in us this morning? It's in Jesus' name. Amen.